Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, we're going to begin reading in the, the 10th verse of Genesis 28. So uh, we are now in the 10th part of this ongoing series that we're calling Patriarchs and Matriarchs. And if you're just joining us, what we're up to in this series is we're trying to learn something about walking in the way of faith. And we're trying to pay close attention to the examples that have been left for us by our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith who have walked the same journey and while in our presumed sophistication we think we are light years away from their capacity because we are a more advanced society, more developed civilization. The truth of the matter is the more we study their experiences, we will recognize that we are not unlike them in many ways. Because when it comes to walking the way of faith, there only is one way, and that is to fall down and rise up and fall down again and rise up again. And if we pay close attention to what they experienced and discovered along their journey, it may help us to inform and shape the decisions that we make in our own So we pick up the story today with Jacob. We talked about Jacob last week, but his saga continues. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place... He put it under his head and lay down in that place. I suspect with the level of fatigue among our students today, you could even sleep upon a stone, I would imagine. Yeah? He took a stone, laid his head upon it, which sounds really good right about now, right? Hang in there, though. And he fell asleep. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending. Notice the pattern on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, 
Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this the gate of heaven. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray. God, we ask now only that you would enable us to understand, to comprehend what you're up to, what you're trying to say to us, what you're trying to do in us. Unclutter the mind today. Steady the heart of your people today so that we may hear a word from you. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Jacob is in trouble. You know we've been watching the patriarchs and the matriarchs. We have studied so many of them by now, 10 weeks in. And last week we began what we call, and scholars refer to as the Jacob narratives. That means for the next several weeks we're paying attention to the stories that are peculiar and particular to Jacob. We noticed last week that Jacob is a man who has been appropriately named Jacob, Yehov, trickster, supplanter, heel grabber. And last week we looked at several episodes in his young adulthood when he attempted to, to climb to the top, to get out front, to win, to be dominant, to be in control by tricking, conniving, supplanting, heel grabbing anyone who was in his way. We said last week that he represents the false self that is in all of us when we attempt to climb, contend, compete, and compare ourselves to everyone around us. That's who Jacob is in you, and that's who it is in me. But now he, at all costs, has burned his last bridge with his brother. I mean, he stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. We even have that great story in their birth when he was trying to, to steal first place by grabbing his heel and pulling him back in to the womb. And, and now he's gone one step too far. And Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. He's vowed to kill him. And so now he sets out and he's on the run. He's on his way away from his home. He can't go back. Now, if we were to read a little bit closer, the passage right before the one we read, I mean, it says that he's going to go find a wife. But he's also running. You know, there is a difference between running to something and running away from something. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? And we'll clean up the story of it all by saying we're running to something. But how often is it possible that what we're actually doing is running away from something? And we come to this place where he stays in a peculiar spot. The, the verse tells us where he is. He's already left his home. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for a night because the sun had set. And I just want you to pay attention to the last phrase for just a few moments. The sun had set. And when the Bible says something like that, it's not just letting us know what time of day it was. It's not just revealing that the daylight savings time had ended and it was dark early and he couldn't travel at night. 
When it says the sun had set, it means the sun had set on this season in his life. He left Beersheba because some stuff went down in Beersheba and he can't show his face there again. That's, that's then. And it was filled with all kinds of his childhood, his early adulthood, all the hopes and the hurts, all the memories, all the wounds that he inflicted. And now he can't go home. So the sun had set on a season of his life and and the fact is before we go any further let's just acknowledge with each other that there are moments there are sunset moments in all of our lives if we live long enough where the thing happens and and you're never the same after it and you know what I'm talking about because the thing goes down and and you are never not aware of the thing that went down the sun has set I mean, on a national scale, you and I think about this when we think about 9-11, September 11th. There was a time before 9-11, and then there's a time after 9-11, right? The sun had set on a certain level of naivete, a certain level of innocence, and now everything after 9-11 shapes who we are and who we think we are and what happens in us, right? But the same thing happens in all of our families and all of our individual journeys. The thing happens. The divorce happens. The job loss happens, the funeral happens, whatever it is for you, there is a moment in which the sun goes down and it's dark. And he comes to a place where the sun had set. And the curious thing about this text, throw the the, the verse back up there, is he's in a place that has no name. He's in a place between places. He's in a place that has no name. It's a place between places. It's a time between times. He's already left Beersheba, but he has not yet made it to Haran. He's in this strange in-between place. Between the already and the not yet. Yeah. Between the already and the not yet. And, and there's, it's not even named in the, in the text. The verse just says he was at a certain place. And I think that it says it that way, doesn't give it a name. I mean, it has a name, Glenn. I mean, you could have looked on a map in ancient Mesopotamia and found it. But the writer doesn't tell us what the name is. The writer says it is a certain place. Why? Because the writer is hoping that you, the reader, will fill in the blank. Because live long enough, I don't care who you are, where you come from, what you've been through, you have a Beersheba and you've left it. Sun's gone down. And you have a Heron, it's coming, but you're not there yet. And it is certain that you will be there. It is a certain place. This between the already and the not yet. And and whether you're there now or you've been there or it hasn't come yet, it will come. It is certain. It is a certain place. And only you can give it a name. You know, there is a word that we use for this kind of human experience. When you're between things, when you've already left something but the other thing hadn't happened, it's a big fat word, it's liminality. Liminality, okay, use that one at lunch. Liminality is simply a Latin word from the Latin lemon, which means threshold. Liminality, or a, a time, a liminal stage, a liminal period in our lives, is that in-between place when we've already done the thing, but we hadn't done the other thing, and we're in-between. 
Liminality is that threshold between the already and the not yet. And if you haven't connected the dots just yet, let me just go ahead and spoiler alert. It's not a fun place to be. Because when you leave the already, even though you may be running from some pain, you're also running from every kind of comfort, every kind of familiar thing, everything that has always given you a sense of stability and confidence and predictability to life. And you're now in this liminal stage of in-betweenness, this nebulous kind of in-between living. And it's no fun. And most of us, you know what we mostly do? We fight it. We resist it. Sometimes we deny that we're even there. One of my favorite people wrote about this recently, uh, Richard Rohr. I want you to listen to what Richard Rohr says about liminal spaces in our lives. He says, liminal space is where human beings hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is when you have left everything that is tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It is when you are finally out of the way It is when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you're not trained how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, then guess what? You will run. You will run. But it's a good space where genuine newness can begin. Get there often and stay as long as you can by whatever means possible. This is the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart and a bigger world is revealed. If we don't encounter liminal space in our lives, we start idealizing normalcy. In other words, we start to idolize and worship the right here and the right now. Everything that we know about the right here and right now, we start to worship it as if it'll never change, but it will change. The liminal threshold is God's waiting room. Listen to that. Here we are taught patience as we await an appointment with the divine doctor. Beloved, I don't know what defines your liminal space. I don't know what your Beersheba was. I don't know what your Haran is. But I guarantee you, if you've not already camped out there yet, that there is coming a certain place where you will pitch a tent in the darkness between the already and the not yet. And most of us are inclined to fight it, to run away from it, Most of us are inclined to resist it or even deny that it's there. So some of us will run back or try to run back to Beersheba. Others of us will try to run forward even when it's too early and we can't yet. We try to run forward to Haran before it's time. Can I give you an example of what that looks like? I mean, when life lands you in the middle space, the liminal space between the already and the not yet, I think about my brother, Toby. Most of you are aware I I had a younger brother, about three years younger, who died at 25. When we were young, when we were teenagers, um, our parents divorced for the second time. And through a series of unfortunate events, we ended up losing the house that we lived in our entire life. It was gone. And during that time, we are told, I am told, uh, from a neighbor who lived in our neighborhood, who watched us grow up, 
that during that period of time after the house was lost and everything was lost, all things were gone and Beersheba was years and years ago, that Toby, my brother, would go and park his car in the driveway and sit for hours, for about two or three weeks, would sit every day for hours. And he never told me that, and I don't know what he was thinking, but I guarantee you what he was thinking. Because he and I could tell you a story about every square foot on that property. We could tell the stories. And I guarantee you what he was doing, he was reliving them in his pain, in his in-betweenness, attempting to run back to a place that was familiar and strong and, and, and confident. Because sometimes when we don't know what to do in the liminal space, our instinct is to run back and try to create a thing that is gone. But the flip side of that is sometimes we try to run forward. <laughs> Several years ago at another church, even before I was a senior pastor, I was at a church and this man came in and his... Um, Marriage had fallen apart, and there was uh, infidelity, and she had cheated and left him, and, and he was broken. I mean, he was completely broken, and we walked through some things, and we talked about how to, how to live and how to breathe and how to make it one step at a time, and one of the things that I said was, look, there will be a temptation in you to find creative ways to take revenge because you can have revenge relationships and you can have revenge sexual relationships, and you can have revenge destructive behavior, and I'm just trying to tell you why you're right here in the middle. I didn't use this language at the time, but while you're here in this place, just stop and just breathe and just wait. And he didn't. And six months later, he came back, and his life has fallen apart because he had gone and tried to recreate every kind of relationship you can possibly imagine. He had tried to run into Haran before the sun had risen. You and I have the capacity, when we don't know how to live in the liminal, we have the capacity to want to run back to Beersheba or run ahead to Haran, and neither is possible, neither which is why I think it's fascinating to me that this vision that he has about the ladder, it happens while he's asleep. It happens in a dream, which is significant because when you and I fall asleep, guess what happens? We let our guard down. When we are sleeping, we become vulnerable. When we sleep, we're not in control. When we sleep, we're not grabbing on to life. We've let go, in a sense. This is why the ancients used to call sleep a little death. Because every time you fall asleep, whether it's at night or at a nap, when you fall asleep, there is a moment in which you are ushered into a realm in which you just have no control over you. And there's a certain trust inherent in sleep in which when you fall, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. When, when you go to sleep, it's as if you are relinquishing the control that presumably you have during your waking hours. And what Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament theologian, points out about this passage is that in falling asleep, Jacob 
have the capacity for a different version of his life to be inserted in his life, inserted in his mind and imagination. Because during his waking up hours, Jacob was in control. During his awake hours, Jacob had everything by the heel, grab at everything. But when he's asleep, he's relinquished and able to envision a version of his life that is so very different. When you and I are living in the liminal, it requires vulnerability. It requires a certain radical trust that, look, it's almost like falling asleep. I, I, I trust that I can't go back to Beersheba. I can't run ahead to Haran. So I'm going to relinquish through practice. I'm going to relinquish my life into a radical trust in you. Which raises a question I just want to put out before you in worship. Can you think about this question just deeply? In the unnamed space between you're already and you're not yet, where are you being called to a deeper trust? Because I can't name your unnamed space. I don't know what it is that you've come out of and what you're hoping to run into, but in that space in between the thing that's happened and the thing that has not yet come, where is it that God is hoping that you will learn how to trust more deeply? So he has this vision. He has this vision of a ladder that is set up on the earth. And it's not a ladder like you and I would think of a ladder, an extension ladder or a step ladder, but rather it's more appropriate to think about a Mesopotamian uh, ziggurat. A ziggurat, here's a picture of a ziggurat, is made out of a, a mound of earth and has a series of ascending ramps along the side. And on the top of the ziggurat, there's a temple where presumably the deity would live, and that would be his domain. That's where he would abide, which is very striking about this image because when Jacob has this dream about this ziggurat, this ladder, this ramp to heaven, the deity is not on top in the temple far removed, but in this story, the story where the angels are coming up and down and up and down, God is at the bottom of the ladder. God has come down and is standing next to Jacob at the bottom of the ladder. And for the first time, Jacob is introduced to the God who descends. The God who descends. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you already know that God. I mean, we know the God who descends. Jesus Christ is the God who comes down low from on high. It's very incarnational. This is why in Philippians 2 we read about it this way, that Christ, well, he's the one who, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in Christ, we meet the God Jacob met because in Christ, we see the God who knows how to descend as low as it takes to meet us where we are. This is why in John's gospel, we read about that same God this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, moved right next door to us. We saw the glory with our own eyes. This is why as Christians, we know him by a particular name. In Matthew's gospel, we are given the name. 
They shall name him Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the very, the very foundation that gives us faith as Christian people is based on the God who knows how to descend. And here in this text, Jacob meets the God who has descended. And, and here's what's curious. This God gives a speech to Jacob that is almost verbatim the same speech that he gave to Jacob's father and his grandfather. He says these words, Know that I am with you and, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And in one verse, six times the word you is emphasized. In one verse. Because he assumes that God will be faithful to his father and grandfather. He assumes that back in Beersheba, that's where God abides and that's where God exists and that's where God is faithful. But he had no clue that here in the in-between of life that he himself would receive the promise of God's presence. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you, you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And that's just one verse. It continues on with two or three other verses of you, 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 you. And it blows Jacob's mind. I had no idea that I was that close to this God. This is the way he put it in the verse. Then Jacob woke from his sleep, which is interesting language, isn't it? Isn't that what salvation really is? A waking from sleep. He woke from sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The Lord is in this place, and, and I did not know it. Beloved, in your place of vulnerability, in your in-between place, between your Beersheba and your Haran, know this, that is a spectacular place to run into the presence of God. So what does it require on your part and mine? What does it require? What do we do if we find ourselves between? What do we do? I believe even this text gives us the answer. Did you notice that the story begins by Jacob falling asleep on a stone pillow? It's an odd way for the story to begin. Taking one of the stones in that place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place. And this is where I want you to dial in. Scholars believe that Abraham, his grandfather, when he traveled through that same region years and years and years prior, he set up an altar in that place. Do you remember we studied this 10 weeks ago where Abram was traveling by stages and he would go to a place and encounter God to his surprise in this brand new place and he would build an altar and worship him there, pitch a tent and live for a night or two and then move on. Remember, he moved by stages and it's absolutely possible that the writer is telling us about the stone pillow because as he reaches out to find a stone, maybe it's from the rubble of an old altar built by his grandfather. But what does it mean? What would it mean for you and for me to learn how to rest upon the faith of our ancestors? What would it mean for us to rest, find comfort, find vulnerability and confidence in the collective witness 
of the ancients. See, here's the problem with people like us. We get everything we want right away. We don't wait for anything. We don't wait for anything, right? You want news, you get it right away. You want to communicate, you text it right away. Which means there is something being formed in us where we believe without saying it out loud that the only thing that really matters is what we have right here, the immediate. And it could lead us to believe that the only thing that's significant, the only thing worth anything of value is what we experience in our lifetime. But if you are in the Christian faith, you've got to remember that you have a history to this faith. That you're not the first and you're not the last. The sun will not rise nor set on you in the Christian faith. There is a historicity to it. There is a long arc to where this thing has come from and a longer arc to where this thing is going. What would it look like for you in all of your vulnerability when you have no answers and you don't know what to do or which way to turn, what would it look like to lean upon, lay your head upon the witness of the ancients? Because those who have come before us have said the same thing. They may not say it in 140 characters in a tweet. They may not have texted it. They may not have emailed it. But they each have been to Beersheba just like you. They each have hoped for a Haran just like you. And they each have lived in that painful, excruciating place of in-betweenness just like you. This is why in Hebrews, we read it in chapter 12, these words, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from the things that are not visible. And in the very next chapter, he goes on to read this, to, to write this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since the ancients have gone before us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, let us not forget that enduring the cross, the cross is a stage of liminality. That Christ himself, the cross, represents that, that bridge between everything that we have known and all that was wonderful, and yet, oh my gosh, it's gone. It's been nailed to a tree. It's dead and will not live again. But the gospel message is anything buried with Christ doesn't stay dead long, that you will live, that you will make it to Haran, that you will rise again and will awaken to a new life that like you had never imagined before, but it requires resting on the stone pillow of the faith of the ancients. Let it carry you today. Let it comfort you today. Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let them speak to you today, one day at a time. Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. God, in this moment, we, we pray that you would show us just how to find comfort in those words. But more than that, show us 
how to live and breathe and, and have our existence even in the liminal stage. Show us how to be faithful in between the already and the not yet. Show us that you are here among us at the bottom of the ladder right next to us. Show us that your promise for our life and for our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon yours. Strengthen us this day, Lord, as we attempt to follow you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.